Big Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. This is going to be part eight of the Sea of Galilee. As we've been moving through different stories that are all happening around the sea and how central the Sea of Galilee is to the ministry of Jesus. And today we're going to talk a little bit about fishing and fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to look at one of the miracles that John records at the very end of John, John chapter 21, that happens in a location right here, which is in front of the camera. Now, what you can't see is the actual location on the beach is behind these trees in the foreground. But it's in this northwest corner of the lake, the Jewish region. It's where all the Jewish villages are. I'll take you down to where the, the beach is today. They've got a church there. And it's in this little spot. It happens to be a very good fishing ground in the winter. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. Just to orient you a little bit, as we've looked at the map in the past, here's Mount Arbel. So Mount Arbel is that big prominent mountain that sits right above the city of Magdala and that's on the northwest shore corner of the lake. So that's just, just to help your mind orient. All right, so as a way of preview, we're going to talk fishing. We know more about fishing than most people think. I'll show you a scholar who wrote extensively about fishing in the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk a little bit about ancient harbors. I'll show you they found a number of ancient harbors around the lake. You can still see them today. The place where we're going to go, that the miracle happens, today is called Tabga, and that is, it's a corrupted Arab word that I'll show you how they get that. But ultimately, it means seven springs. So there's these hot, these warm water springs that come out of the earth, go into the water, and of course, that attracts the fish, and it makes a great fishing ground. So the place is today called Tabga, though there wasn't a village there, it was just a good fishing spot. We'll look at John 21 as we kind of build some of the details of fishing. When we get to John 21, some of the things will start to make sense of what type of fishing they're doing and what, what, how the miracle is actually taking place. And then finally, we're going to land on this 153 fish, and that's what we're going to do, an introduction of 153 today, and then go into next week to go much further in depth in how this number is communicating something from the Old Testament. 
Okay, so that's preview. If we go to a map, so just to help you, help show where on the map we're at, this is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus set up his hometown in Capernaum. That's that on the on almost the north side of the lake. And then Magdala, if you look on the west side, there's Magdala. And Mount Arbel sits right behind Magdala. Well, in between Capernaum and Magdala is this place with the seven springs. It's right here on the shore. And there was no village there, as I mentioned, but good fishing location. So if I go a little bit closer, just to help you, here's Capernaum, here's Magdala, you got Mount Arbel there on the west side. Uh, many of you, you may have gone to, there's a church that, um, the traditional site of the Mount of Beatitudes is right here. So there's a mountain, a hillside, there's a church on top of it, the Church of the Beatitudes, you can go, many people go to that church. Then they also, scholars think that that is the place of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a big hill that's barren, so it's an Eremos Tapos, it's a, it's a deserted area for 5,000 people to sit down. You don't want to sit in a farmer's field and ruin the crops, so you sit up on a hillside where there are no crops. And then right below that mound of Beatitudes is right here is where you get seven springs, Tabga called today, and you have seven springs of warm water that come into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so fishing, we know a lot. We know quite a bit about fishing in the Sea of Galilee. There's an entire uh, museum at a place called Ein Gev uh, that's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee that's a museum of fishing. So they find anchors and they find weights for nets and they have found netting from the first century. So we know that the, the types of fishing they did ha hadn't changed for thousands of years until the 20th century began to get different materials for fishing. Now, how do we know about this? Well, there's a scholar, probably the foremost expert in fishing at the Sea of Galilee. His name is Mendel Nun. Now, Mendel Nun passed away a couple years ago, but he wrote a book, you can buy it on Amazon, called The Sea of Galilee and Its Fishermen in the New Testament. And he walks through all the New Testament stories and says, okay, the way they describe this story, this is the type of net they would have been using. This is the probable location, because that's the type of net you use at this location. So a lot of our data about understanding fishing comes from Mendel Nun. And he, boy, I want to say he was either born in Latvia or Poland. His family moved to Israel, and he spent his whole life fishing and living on the Sea of Galilee. So he basically dedicated his life to understanding fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's an interesting thing about his name, Mendel Nun. Now, this is part, uh, this is number two on your sheet. If we just look at the, some of the words or about the, the Hebrew words for fish, there's two of them. Well, the first one is Nun. So his last name, he changes his last name, actually. He took on the name Nun. So Joshua, son of Nun. We say Joshua, son of Nun. In Hebrew, you always start with a verb. So at the, the root of everything is a verb, and nun means to propagate, to increase greatly. And I would imagine 
that they would observe that they would see a few fish and suddenly they would see hundreds of fish as, as new fish babies are born. Or seeing a school of fish and you thought, well, they're propagating, they're greatly increasing. That's the verb. The noun is fish. So nun can mean fish. Now there's a second word in Hebrew for fish, and it's dag, and that's the normal word that most people know. But as a verb, it means to increase. So it's it basically means the same thing, and then as a noun, it can mean fish. So the leading expert on fishing is Mendel Fish, or Mendel Nun. That's one way you can remember who the person was. Okay, so one of the other things that he did, besides fishing on the Sea of Galilee, number three on your handout, is he went around the lake and they found all the ancient harbors, and they would try to date the harbors to see which ones come from the first century. Now, on this map, I counted 14 harbors, but in my notes, I have 13 harbors. So here's a map of the sea, and all around the sea, you get these harbors. So you can see at Capernaum, there were harbors. It's just built up with rocks. Then at Tabgah, that's where we're going to go. There's a harbor. I'll show you a picture of that harbor in a second. There was one at Magdala, big fishing village. Magdala was famous for salting sardines. Little fish. According to the Bible, sardines is little fish. And they would salt them, and then you could take them around like beef jerky, carry them in your little pouch as uh, some protein to eat. Uh, there's over at Gennesar. One time the disciples are in the boat, and they land their boat at Gennesar. So there's a port over it, or an ancient harbor over at Gennesar. So all around the lake, you found ancient harbors. And this is another thing that Mendel Noon studied. So let me show you a picture of one. This is an ancient harbor at Tabga. Now, the only thing you see is in this picture right here in that yellow circle, it looks like a bunch of rocks sticking out of the water. And the rocks in this picture look a little spiky because there's a whole bunch of birds sitting on the rocks. So it's, if it looks spiky, it's because birds are sitting on the rocks. And this picture was taken in January. So at January in the time, the lake level was a little bit higher. This was a couple years ago. And then I'll show you the same port from a different angle, or same harbor. And this picture was taken in September. So when the, the sea might have been at the, at the lower level, it's been evaporating, the rivers are down. But you can see you've got some, an opening, you've got a kind of a break wall. I mean, these boats are not very big, carry two to four people. And then you could just line your boat up in there. And so one question is, would the sea level be different than it was at, in the time of Jesus? And the answer is probably not. The sea level, if, it, if, there, if the sea level was higher, well, it would go over these rocks. If the sea level was lower, well, you wouldn't be able to pull the boat in. So scholars think that the sea level is just about the same as it was. And it rises and falls on normal cycles like any lake or any like anything does in life, there's always cycles. So anyways, this is what a port would look like. Just looks like some stones that are a bit out of place that you would pull some, your boat in and then at least keep it protected as the waves are maybe hitting the shore, they would hit a break wall instead. So that is a picture of an ancient harbor. Again, we know at least 13 of them that date back to the first century. Okay. 
One note about disciples and fishing. So we know that Jesus called fishermen. Not all of them were fishermen, but a significant portion of the people he called were fishermen. And there's debate. Why did he do that, right? Maybe it's because every day they face the abyss. They go out on the abyss of the sea where the devil lives, and they face it down. And so perhaps that's a reason. But either way, he calls fishermen as disciples. But there's something interesting about the Bible. The Gospels, as they record the stories of the disciples, never once in the Gospels are the disciples recorded as having a catch or catching a fish on their own. They never catch a fish on their own. Now, what does that mean? Are they really awful fishermen that they don't know how to do their job? The only time you see the disciples catching a fish is when Jesus helps them. So when you see a a story from the disciples catching a fish, it's always when Jesus is directing something. Cast your line in over there, Peter. Drop your nets over here, uh, disciples. Whatever it is. So it's just an interesting thing. And again, I don't think it's because they were bad at their job. I think that the, the Gospels are telling us something. Don't go fishing without Jesus. Let him do all the work. So if he's going to turn us into fishers of men, it's by his power, though, that the fishing is happening. And I think that's part of the message, at least. Don't fish without Jesus. So it's just an interesting, and as you'll see tonight, tonight, boy, that was, I don't know where that came from. As we'll see today, they're fishing all night, and they're not catching anything, which is exactly uh, the way the gospel talks about the disciples and fishing. Okay, so we've got ancient harbors. We've got fishing, studied by Mendel Nunn. We've got the disciples and fishing. They never catch anything until Jesus helps them. And then this story today is going to take place, as I mentioned, uh, near a, what we call today Tabga. Right behind these trees, along the shore, are some springs that come out. And if you go down to the shoreline today, you see a church that looks like this. So this church, I'll show you a di- different picture in a minute, is where Tabga is today. And this is called the Church of the Primacy. And they call it that because tradition holds that there's, if you go inside that church, there's a rock outcropping that's, that the church is built around. And tradition says that's where Jesus talked to Peter and said, feed my sheep, where he makes Peter the leader. Uh, so church of the primacy. Now, how do we get the name Tabga? Because that's the modern name. I just want to take you through. It's a fairly circuitous route to get to Tabga, because it's a corrupted word that then is brought into Arabic. But it kind of goes like this. So in Hebrew, this location is called Ein Sheva, and it means spring of seven. So Ein, as we'll see later, the word Ein is spring. Ein Sheva. Spring of seven. Sheva is seven. So there's seven springs. If you go to Greek, the word is Heptapagon, and that means seven springs. But now we've got to take that Greek word and bring it into Arabic. And what they did was they shortened the Greek word, tapagon, which I'm probably not even pronouncing that correctly, but 
that word tapagon goes into Arabic, and Arabic doesn't have P's. So anywhere you find a P in Greek, like the city of Panias, which is Caesarea Philippi, Arabs call it Banias with a B. So you can see top, tapagon goes to tabga. It's just the, the way the language works. So anyways, that's how we get to the name Topka, but it's essentially a shortened meaning of seven springs. It's a place of seven springs. And that right there is the Church of the Primacy. So when we see in John, it says Jesus was standing on the shore. He may have been standing on those rock outcroppings, which gives him a little bit of a height advantage to look down into the water and see a school of fish. That's what Mendel Noon said there's in right in the early morning, as the sun was starting to come up, they would often put a uh, somebody on the shore to help the fishermen see where the fish are. So this is where Jesus, at least tradition says, was standing. Okay, so let's talk fishing. What's so special about Tabga? Why is Tabga a great fishing location? Well, if you've done any fishing in your lifetime, anywhere that, like, you have a stream uh, flowing into a body of water, the water coming out of the stream is always more oxygenated. There's always more, say, microorganisms. The fish are attracted to that. So fish like to be in the more oxygenated water. So they'll go to the place where the water flows in. So now you have warm springs, and the warm springs holds up, um, microorganisms that the fish like. So wherever you have warm springs running into water, you normally get a congregation of fish, and that's exactly what happens. So the fish in the, what we call today St. Peter's fish is tilapia. Tilapia is, an, is a, um, it's a tropical fish, so it doesn't like cold water. So in the wintertime, when the temperature of the Sea of Galilee drops, the tilapia start to congregate around Tabga in the shallow water. So in the winter and early spring, the fishermen will go to that location to fish because that's where the tilapia are. And interesting, Bonnie and I, we were standing there right next to the springs. It was December 30th, and the, the, the Sea of Galilee was like, was like glass. It was really calm, and there were tilapia jumping all over the place. So wintertime, that's where the tilapia go. Okay, it's fairly shallow. We'll see in the text that they were about 100 yards offshore. And according to Mendel Noon, they fish with something called a trammel net. Now, I'll show you a picture. It's not exactly how it would have been, but it'll give you at least an idea. A trammel net has weights. It'll take it down to the bottom. So you want the trammel net to go all the way to the bottom of the, of the sea. And it's not that deep out there. So it would be at the bottom. And then you'd make an arc, like from the, sh that would, uh, the arc would be facing the shore. And then you, you bang on the side of the boat. They would bang on the side of the boat. The fish trying to escape to deeper waters would dive, and they would run into the trammel net. And then the, they would get entangled in the trammel net. So that's how you do the fishing, and it's always done at night. So we'll see this in the text. Why fish at night? Well, because the daytime, once it gets light out, the fish can see the trammel net, and they won't swim into it. But at nighttime, you scare the fish, they dive as they're trying to get deeper water. They run right into the trammel net because they can't see it. So this is, again, according to Mendel Noon, 
how they would be fishing that night. They go out, they fish all night long, right by Tabga. Well, how do you fish for tilapia at Tabga? You fish with a trammel net. So let me show you one picture. And again, it's not exactly how it would go, but it'll at least give you enough of a... The trammel net is the net that drops to the bottom. So I'm going to put this red line right across the bottom there of the net. The trammel net goes straight down to the bottom, and that stops the fish from being able to get out. Then another boat, because if we see in, if you read John, you'll notice there's lots of fishermen. They're not all in one boat. But the second boat would start banging and making noise and splashing the water. The fish would then dive towards deeper water and get caught up in the net. So that's typically, it would take two boats to do this because you need to spread the net out and then have one boat scare the fish in. Now the other boat, as we see here, you notice this guy right in the middle. The, there's a boat kind of inside the trammel net, and this person is throwing a different kind of net. It's called a cast net. So this, this person throwing the cast net would be trying to sweep up any little fish that may be schooling around. So it doesn't always mean for tilapia, it could be any fish that are inside there schooling around. Here's the thing. The guy standing on the boat throwing the cast net would be naked. Because what he's going to do is he's going to throw the cast net, and then he's going to dive in the water to go, to the, go down to the bottom, scoop up the, the cast net, and pull it up to see if he has any fish. And then he would get back on the boat, and he would do it again. So all night long, you throw the net, you dive in, so, you just, so you're naked. It's nighttime, so that at least you have the covering of darkness for modesty purposes. As we get to the story in John, the Bible's going to say, and Peter put on his outer garment because, John puts in parentheses, he was naked. So Peter is the guy standing on the boat throwing in the cast net. We know that from the text, although there's very few modern translations that keep the word naked, even though the word is for naked, gumnos. So, Anyways, this is what it, what it looks like. And Peter would be the one throwing the net because he was naked. All right, so now that we have a little bit of a picture of fishing, I want you to turn to John 21. So I'll give you a second. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but I want to give you enough sense of what's going on in John 21. So the story goes, Jesus' death, resurrection, and happens at Passover. Passover is anywhere from March to April, so it's early spring. After the Passover, the disciples go back to Galilee, and Peter says, hey, we're, let's go fishing. So they go out for the night fishing. So it's the, time of, it's the time of year that they would be fishing for tilapia. The, the, the very vague description of the way they're fishing would, would be the trammel net and a cast net, even though John's not specifically trying to technically describe the fishing, he is giving us enough information that you can tell what's going on. So Jesus is now in a resurrected state. They're out fishing, and he's going to show up and help them. So if we look at John 21, verse 3. So verse 3 Peter says, 
I'm going out to, fi to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and now the key. But that night, they caught nothing. So we know it's nighttime. They're out fishing at night. And, oh, by the way, they caught nothing. And that's the typical thing we see about the disciples fishing. They don't have any luck. Okay, next, next verse, verse 4. It says, Now it's early in the morning. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. And Mendel Nunn, again, he points out that often, as the sun starts to come up, they would put somebody on shore, standing in a little bit of a higher position, and he's looking to see if he can see any shadows in the water, the schools of fish moving around. And so his thought is, that's probably what Jesus did. He said, hey, look over there. I see, the, I see a thing of fish over here. Okay, so he stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Now, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, right here, we get this phrase, throw your net. That's key, because that's going to say he's talking about the person with the cast net. Uh, in Luke, I think it's Luke 5, Luke tells the story. Hey, he, he says, hey, to, to the disciples, they were done fishing for the night. He says, hey, put your boat back out and let down your nets. Now, in that case, let down your nets is the trammel net. They had been fishing at night with a trammel net. They didn't catch anything. Jesus says, let down your net, and a school of fish swims right into the net. So this is a little bit different. Throw your net. So throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. What happens, of course? When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Okay, now, verse 7. Therefore, or, yeah, therefore, oh, here's what, it, let me tell you about this. I had to go to the King James Version, so I'm pulling this from the King James Version, so it's using the more, the traditional Old English, because this is the version that says Peter was naked. Everybody else, all the other versions are changing it a little bit. So, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, remember, anytime John mentions himself in the Bible, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he, when he, as commenting on himself. So John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, this is where the English gets, he girt up his fisher's coat unto him. Basically, he put on his outer garment, for he was naked. So he's the one naked person. And as soon as he realizes it's Jesus, he's going to cover that up. So he quickly puts on his, his other garment, and then he jumps into the water to start going ashore. So it tells you they're not that deep either. It's not that deep of water. So Peter is the one who's naked. Now what I want you to do is skip down to, to verse 11. So in your Bible, if you skip down to John 21, 11, this is going to be the part about 153. So Jesus says, hey, grab some of those fish you just caught. Now, if you read Mendel Nunn's book about this, he goes into a lot more of the technicalities about the net. Why the net in this story is really the key, because they're not using the trammel net. When Jesus says, go get some of the fish, they pull up the cast net. So Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full 
of large fish. So the first thing we notice is it's not sardines. It's large fish. It's the tilapia. But you're not supposed to catch 153 tilapia in a cast net. The tilapia are caught in the trammel net. So part of the miracle is wrong net to catch those fish. And 153 of them all inside one cast net is almost impossible. So it was full of large fish. That's the tilapia. There was 153. We'll get to that in a minute. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Again, part of the miracle is wrong net, 153 fish, which shouldn't be caught in that net. And they're the large fish, just to make sure you don't think that he was talking sardines. So it wasn't like he threw the net over a school of sardines. So Mendel Noon points out that part of the miracle is right there. It has to do with the netting, the way they're fishing, and the fact that they got that many fish inside that net. Okay. Hopefully that at least gives you a little bit of a picture of what they would have been doing that, that night, very early morning, as they're out fishing. But then we have to ask this question, why include this detail of 153? Why include that? What does that mean? Is there any significance to that? And the answer, of course, is yes. Is there anything from the Old Testament that we could connect that to? And the answer, of course, is yes. So today, we'll do a little a bit of an introduction to this number, 153, and find out, you know, we read 153, and we don't know what to do with that. Well, that's just a random number, but it's not a random number. And John knows that, and many of, his, many of the people reading John's letter in the first century would know it, so he's going to include that detail. Many of his Jewish audiences would know that that's not a normal number, and they would know the place in the Old Testament that you find where John is pointing you to. And th that part in the Old Testament, oh, by the way, has to do with fishermen. So, okay, so this is going to be an introduction. We'll talk a little bit this morning about this number 153, it takes some thinking about and reflecting on, so it's not something that, and if you're not a math person, I apologize, but it's not always something that just jumps right out. You have to think through and maybe do a little reading on your own of why these numbers were important. So 153 is part of a sequence of numbers. And maybe you know, you know, maybe you know somebody who you know, prime numbers are a sequence of numbers. And maybe you've met someone in your lifetime. They're always pointing out prime numbers. They love to do that because they know the sequence. So they love to show you how they know the sequence of prime numbers. So 153 is inside of a sequence of numbers that are called triangular. So a triangular number sequence, and I'll try to explain this. I'm going to show you two different ways. There's a number of ways you can, if you read about it, you'll see they have formulas to do the calculation, but I'll at least show you what they're doing with it and how you come up with these numbers. But it's a sequence of numbers, and the higher the sequence goes, the larger the di distance between each triangular number. And so that means that they're not very often, so triangular numbers stand out. One way I'll, I'll, I can help depict it, or that's often explained, is with an equilateral triangle. So on your sheet, under number eight, you'll see that I have an equilateral triangle. Equilateral. Every side of the triangle is equal in length. 
So that's one way, and I'll, I'll talk through that in a second. That's one way you depict it. The second way is with a formula, just doing the math. So let's say we said what we have, we have the number four. I use number four because this is more of a sacred number. Number four, and you say, well, what's the triangle of four? Well, you can do the math. Four plus three plus two plus one. So four plus three is seven, plus two is nine, plus one equals 10. And so your solution is 10 is the triangle of four. And you're like, what the heck are we talking about? Well, let me show you. At least I'll graph, try to graphically depict this. If you want to make an equilateral triangle with four, say, four units on each, uh, on the edge of each side of the triangle, so it's equal, four, 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 what you're going to end up with is 10 units on the inside. It looks like this. So here's, uh, oh, number four is, we're looking for the number four and 10 is the triangle of four. So you'd say, here's one inside the triangle, two, one plus two, plus three, plus four. So each side of the triangle now has four dots. And if we add all of those up, well, okay, first of all, this side is equal to this side is equal to the bottom. If you add all the dots, you get 10 dots. So it's a way of depicting a triangle. The triangle of four is 10. Then you'd say, well, wait a minute, what about the triangle of five? What do we want to do with five? Well, you add, you add the next layer underneath the triangle, and you add five dots so that you keep an equilateral triangle. So the, the triangle number of five is 15. All right, that's just introduction to triangle. You might have to read some more about that. But here's the key. The number 17, so if you said, what's the triangle of number 17? The answer is 153. Boom. So if you're an ancient reader, and many of the ancient religions paid attention to numbers, the Hebrew Bible, you can pay attention to numbers. That's what we'll talk more in depth next week. There's a whole way of studying uh, the Bible that the rabbis connect words by what's called gematria, and it's numbers. So the fact that 17 and 153 are connected, that's important to remember. And by the way, the reason I showed you is the number 4 and the number 10. Um, this was a sacred number to a group of people called the Pythagoreans. Now, Pythagoreans were like a cult, a mystery cult, started by a guy named Pythagoras, and we all learned the Pythagorean theorem when we were in school. The one of the fundamental piece things about in math that you learn. So in the cult of, in many of these cults that use numbers, Four and ten were sacred, because ten is a number of completion, and that's, that's in the Bible, too. We have ten commandments. So this became a symbol for something that was complete, um, and it was, it was a sacred number. Now, let me show you one more. This is not on your sheet, but I just want to show you there's another triangle number that you're all familiar with. So if you said, what's the triangle of 36? And the answer is 666. So 666, in the Bible, we, have all the, we read it, and we have all these associations with the devil and, with, and the evil that comes along with that number. So 
but that's a triangle number, so it's a number that stands out. But there's even something bigger about this number. Not only is 666 the triangle of 36, but 36 itself is a triangle number. It's the triangle of 8. And so now you get like a double whammy. It's like an even more significant number because you go from 8 to 36, and 36 then is a, tri is a triangle number, and then the triangle of 30 36 is 666. So anyways, you get this, it's like exponential. That's why there's significance to that. Well, that's part of the reason why that would be a significant number. And then I want to show you one last piece, because in the mystical sides of both Judaism and mystical Christianity, you get a symbol like this triangle with 10 spots in it. And what they do is they use the name of God, yud heh vav -Hey. So this is a, I found this t-shirt. You can buy this t-shirt on Amazon. So notice the equilateral triangle, and inside that triangle are the, is the name of God. A yud, a he, a vav, and a he. So you have the yud at the top, he, vav, and he going down the side. Then on the bottom, you have yud, he, vav, he on the bottom. So even within mystical Christianity and mystical Judaism, you get an equilateral triangle with 10, something having to do with 10, and in this case, they put the name of God. So this goes beyond what our normal thinking is. My point is, people in the first century did a lot with numbers, and we don't often recognize that. So you read, you get to something like this, and you say, well, what's, what's the big deal with 153? Well, if you're a numbers person, you're like, aha, he's something there because that's a, a number that stands out to me. It's not just a random, why did John include that detail? It carries symbolism that's deeper than most of us would think. There's a, a good article by a scholar named Richard Bachman. He goes into a lot of the mathematical things that John is doing that all center around these triangle numbers. In fact, um, uh, the number, it's not coming to mind. The book, Luke does this too. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 27, Paul's on a boat going to Rome, and then he just randomly inserts, there were uh, 200 and some people on the boat. And you think, now why did he just give us that little detail about the, how many people were on the boat? Well, that number is a triangle number. So again, it stands out. Okay, this is where it's going to connect. Because just like everything in the Gospels, there's often a deeper, layered meaning, and it's always pointing to something in the Old Testament. And in this case, what scholars have long noted was that this is probably pointing to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47, and that's, this is what we're going to look at next week. How is John connecting this to Ezekiel 47, and then what do we understand to be the greater message? It's not spoken explicitly. But what's the implicit message coming out of Ezekiel and post-resurrection 153 fish? So Ezekiel 47, and you don't have to turn there now. We'll be looking at it in detail next week. So this is a little bit of an introduction. But Ezekiel 47 has a vision of the new Jerusalem to come. And part of his vision is that there's going to be a well of living water, a river of life that's going to flow out from underneath the Temple Mount, or underneath the Temple in Jerusalem. And of course, that's a metaphor for the Spirit being poured out over all of the earth. And 
this river flows from Jerusalem and it goes down either side of the mountains. And when it goes down the side of the mountains towards the Dead Sea, then what you end up getting is the Dead Sea fills with fresh water. So as the Spirit goes down into the Dead Sea, according to the Ezekiel vision, suddenly the Dead Sea is freshwater sea. And so in Ezekiel 47, verse 10, and again, we'll look at this in detail next week. Verse 10 starts, notice, fishermen will stand along the shore. Well, what's the story in John 21? Well, he's got fishermen. So there's fishermen involved. Fishermen will stand along the shore. This is the shore of the Dead Sea. From Ein Gedi, so Ein Gedi is a spring, the spring of Gedi, to Ein Eglaim. Now, this is what we're going to really look at in detail next week. Those two words, Gedi and Eglaim. Then it says, there will be places for spreading nets. Well, what do we have in the story of John 21? You have fishermen and nets. And then, the fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Here's the key, and this is exactly where scholars will point us. You have this word, Gedi, Ein Gedi. It's the spring of Gedi. You get, many of you have been there when you go to Israel. And Ein Eglaim. Nobody's been to Ein Eglaim because we don't know where it is. So it's from Ein Gedi to Ein Eglaim. So what? What's the big deal? Well, in Hebrew, and we'll talk again about this next week, in Hebrew, every Hebrew letter is not only a letter, but it's a number. So you can associate Aleph equals one, Bet equals two, Gimel, like Gedi, equals four. No. No, three. Sorry. I had to go through my, I had to sing my Hebrew alphabet song in my head. Um, okay. So if we take the word Gedi, and you add up the Hebrew letters, you get the number 17. Now, we just talked about number 17, right? Because what is number 17 associated with? It's associated with the triangle of 17 is 153. If you add up the Hebrew letters in the word Eglaim, guess what number you get? 153. So those two words are connected. We don't know where Eglaim is. In a a land that relies entirely off of springs, they don't know where Eglaim is. So you've got this word in Hebrew that equals 153. So those two words are are connected, at least mathematically. And if you think, well, that's just coincidence, what's even crazier is that if you start in the Hebrew Bible, where where the section of, of Ezekiel 47 begins, where the chapter begins, Gedi is the 153rd word in the paragraph, or in the um, chapter. So it not only happens that 17, 153 is the triangle of 17, but the word Gedi is the 150 word, 153rd word in the chapter. So it, you, it starts to get really strange as Ezekiel is putting together his Bible to tell us something. 17 and 153. There's fishermen. In the day the Messiah comes, the Spirit will flow out of the temple, and there will be fishermen fishing. 
and then you get the number 153, and you think, well, wait a minute, what is, what's the message that John's trying to tell us? And if we go back to that, and you think, part of the message at least is this, the river of life that comes out of the temple during the age of the Messiah is here. The Messiah has come, and that's exactly what happened. He died and resurrected, and now you get this miraculous story of fish that includes the number 153. It's happening. The Spirit is being poured out. Everything that, that is, was happening in Ezekiel is now showing up here in John. Now, again, that was really fast. We're going to go over all of this again next week in more detail, but at least it gives you an introduction that that number 153 is not simply a large number. It's got a connection deep using numbers, which the Bible does. There's no doubt about that because God speaks to the culture, and if the culture uses numbers, then he speaks numbers to communicate messages, or he uses numbers to communicate messages. Okay. So that's, th that's our little introduction. Let me do a quick review. I forgot to change the word preview to review, so take away the P, and let's do a quick review. We talked about fishing. How do we know so much about fishing in those ancient harbors? Well, a guy named Mendel Fish, Mendel Noon, spent his whole life helping us understand first century fishing and all of the harbors around the lake. You have a place. It's called the Seven Springs. It's where warm water comes out, and so in the wintertime to early spring, before the water temperatures go up, the tilapia will congregate. So you fish for tilapia. John 21 happens sometime March to April, so it's in the early spring, and they're out fishing for tilapia all night using a trammel net, and then John includes this detail that the fishermen caught 153 fish. So then we scratch our heads and say, what is that number all about? But if we dig deeper into numerology and how the ancient people communicated using numbers, you can take that all the way back to Ezekiel um, chapter 47, which I'm sure is where all of our minds went, right? You see 153, you think, aha, Eglime. That makes sense. So, okay. And that's what we'll do next week. We'll finish this up. I'll take you deeper into some of the, the way the Hebrew is and putting together this this little message that the Messiah is here, that spirit is being poured out, and John uses a technique to help us understand that deeper message. So, okay, that is Sea of Galilee Part 8, Fishing. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.